0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. I started the series a number of weeks ago and I started with a metaphor that C.S. Lewis uses and he talks about a, f- a fleet of ships that are at sea and uh, they are in they're sailing in formation, each of them is a seaworthy vessel, they're obviously out at sea for a purpose. And C. S. Lewis kind of breaks that metaphor open and starts to look at it. And he talks about the fact that the the fact that the boats are in formation is related to what we call social ethics. It's how we get on with other people in our world, the people around about us. It's so uh, important that we don't break formation and end up going in all directions colliding with other vessels. So he calls that social ethics. Another thing that he says is necessary for a successful uh, uh, sailing of the fleet is that each of the vessels individually have to be seaworthy. If the vessels aren't seaworthy, then they won't be able to stop going in all directions and crashing with other vessels. So there's social ethics, there's individual ethics. Then there's another element that Lewis calls normative ethics, and what he means by normative ethics is for this, formation of vessels to be regarded as being successful in their mission is that they must know why they are at sea, why have they been sent out. And this is the area of normative ethics. And the reality is, in our culture, we are all about social ethics. We are all about people not crashing into one another. The political correctness that that really dominates our our social landscape is all about not colliding with other vessels, being very tolerant of everybody's view, not expressing any views uh, vehemently of your own, let everybody have their own way, live, let live, don't crash into other people. Now, when it comes to individual ethics, our society hasn't really got a lot to say. What we do say is whatever you do, do it in private, and, and, uh, and so long as it doesn't impinge on other people. So even individual ethics is really viewed through the matrix of social ethics. We don't care what you do in private, just uh, don't crash into other people. When it comes to normative ethics, why are we at sea in the first place? Our culture is completely at sea. We don't have a clue. Of the 26 or 27 great civilizations, Western civilization is the only one that has nothing to teach its people in terms of why are you here. Every other society, whether we consider them to be right or not, is is doesn't really matter. Every society had a reason for their existence and taught it to their people. In Western civilization, we are bereft of reasons in terms of why we are here. Um, So when you ask, what is the purpose of life? There is just this deafening silence in our culture. In this book, we have been following Solomon as he desperately seeks an answer to that question. Why are we here? What is the summum bonum of life? What's, what's the good thing in life that, that I can give myself to? And Solomon has been doing this search, looking for the meaning of life, and he's been doing it without relating to God. It's a search that's done, as the passages say, under the sun, That's a phrase that keeps reoccurring in the book of Ecclesiastes and effectively what it means is it's a secular search. It's being done without reference to God, without reference to the revelation of the scriptures, without reference to spiritual realities at all in fact. And so Solomon's tried numerous experiments. He has gone down the pathway of enlightenment, pursuing wisdom and knowledge and understanding, the life of the mind. He's gone down the pathway of enjoyment, the life of the body, wine, woman, and song. And he's found that both of those two pathways are pointless. He comes back and says they're a waste of time. It's vanity. It's futility. He looked to the palace, to the law courts, to authorities, to those who were who were really uh, released to bring justice to society, he looks to them to see if there is justice, if there is meaning. What he finds is injustice and graft and corruption. He goes to the temple to see if those attending its services have found the meaning and purpose in life that he so desperately desires. But But what he finds is ritual without reality and words and promises that were made but weren't kept. they were were hypocritical, they were meaningless. He pursued the pathway of wealth and possessions, and he concluded that this causes more trouble than it's worth, and it is most certainly not the way to find meaning. He sought answers in generational wisdom. He went back, as it were, to say Have the people of the past any answers? And he gathered together generational wisdom in the form of proverbs, homespun wisdom that every culture has. And what he found there was that they were good as far as they went, but they didn't go nearly far enough. He says... It's better in the long run to follow the way of wisdom, but the problem is even the wise end up dead. And if the long run ends when life ends, then it doesn't go far enough. So that's where we've tracked with Solomon up to this point. In our study of the 12 chapters, we've come to chapter seven, verse 26. I have a problem, I mentioned it last week, I've got one week to finish four or five chapters. Obviously, we can't do it. We start our Advent series in season next week. So I'm going to have to skip some material. But what I want to do very, very briefly is give you a quick overview of where Solomon goes in the next few chapters and then look at the book's conclusion. After gathering the wisdom of the generations and various Proverbs, Solomon presses into human relationships and looks at them a little more deeply. He looks at the relationships between men and women, between a king and his citizens. He looks at... Wicked men and the fickleness of the hoi polloi of the, of the masses, and we see in all of these that Solomon is incredibly ambivalent, he, he's not sure about any of them, he has no confidence in and recognizes he has no control over the way these things work out. And as I say, I don't have a we don't have the time to, to really comment on these in perhaps a way that they deserve comment but let me very briefly point you to one passage where Solomon talks about his relationship with women. And I want to read it to you. It's from chapter 7, verse 26 through 28. And I'm reading from the Good News Translation. It says this, I found out something more bitter than death. The woman who is like a trap, the love she offers you will catch you like a net, her arms and her arms around you will hold you like a chain. A man who pleases God can get away, but she will catch the sinner. Yes, said the philosopher, I found this out little by little while I was looking for answers. I have looked for other answers, but have found none. I found one man in a thousand that I could respect, but not one woman. Just before you start throwing rocks, I didn't write this. This is Solomon, he's very depressed, cut him some slack. <laughs> you know, to modern ears and, and, you know, just your response to that, uh, it, it's incredibly, what we would say, sexist, it's offensive. Don't make the mistake, as so many people do, reading passages like this, don't mistake this for some indication of a biblical perspective on women, okay? Okay. Just I have letters all the time, and they say things like, "Why is the Bible so patriarchal? Why is it so anti-woman? Why is it so pro-slavery? Why, etc., etc." And I've talked about this many times before. But what you have to understand is, the Bible isn't actually any of those things. In fact, the Bible is, in many places, a true record of false ideas. The Old Testament is a patriarchal culture. The word of God comes into that culture. It acknowledges that it sits in the midst of that culture, but it doesn't affirm that culture. What this passage is talking about is Solomon's experience. It starts off and he says, I have found. I found out something. This isn't God's view. This is the reflection of a man who has been hurt in life and in his relationships with women. In many respects, I, sus- I suspect it's much, much of this is his fault. Now, while a position like Solomon's with its uh, status and wealth would necessarily attract some, perhaps some woman who were ambitious and who saw the position and the wealth as being something that they would like rather than the person themselves, Nevertheless, that aside, I think actually much of Solomon's experience with women was his own fault. Here is a man, for example, who has cast his net way too wide. There have been in Solomon's life far too many women. Although he says, I found this out little by little, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. If that constitutes little by little, heaven knows what much by much might look like to this man. Also, I notice that in his relationship with woman, he says, I sought answers, which indicates that this man has completely unrealistic expectations. That is way too much weight to put on any relationship. Let me say to you, your spouse cannot meet Or all your needs or answer all your questions. When you're seeking answers from somebody, that's too much weight on any relationship. There's no wonder this man has some difficulties and that he isn't sure in terms of his relationships with women. For a start, he's asking all the wrong questions, and therefore he is coming up with all of the wrong questions. This isn't some indication of a biblical perspective about women. This is the experience of a man who, who, as I say, is asking all the wrong questions. Goes on, he talks about I'm unsure about my relationships with women. He's not sure about authority figures, he's not sure about the future, he's not sure about the possibility of justice in life. And the next chapters unfold that. In chapter 8, verse 16 through to 9, 16, Solomon returns to his depression and his dark thoughts of death. He's playing Pink Floyd again. Death awaits us all, he says, the best you can do is enjoy what you have while you can. it's it's vanity. From 9.17 through to 11.7, he goes back to the way of wisdom and back to the generational wisdom of the Proverbs. From chapter 11, verse eight, he begins to sum up and bring this journey to a conclusion. And I wanna read to you from the Good News translation for a little bit. He says, especially to young people, he's addressing this. Be grateful every year of your life. No matter how long you live, remember, you'll be dead much longer. <laughs> Exhortation, edification, and comfort. There's nothing at all to look forward to. Young people, enjoy your youth. Be happy while you're still young. Do what you want to do and follow your heart's desire. But remember, God is going to judge you for whatever you do. Don't let anything worry you. After that, it's like, What? Don't let anything worry you or cause you pain. You aren't going to be young very long. (laughs) Pops another Prozac. (laughs) Chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house tremble, the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home. And the uh, the mourners, (laughs) the Mormons, the (laughs) mourners—well, they can they can be part of it if they want to. The mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. You've got to remember now, Solomon is an old man when he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes. I said right at the beginning of the series, he's an old man really addressing younger people, imploring them not to make the same mistakes that he's made, not to go down the same dead-end roads and wrong paths that he's traveled. He's saying, learn from my mistakes. And he concludes this journey with an impassioned plea to younger people. Enjoy your youth, be happy while you can. See, youth does have many positives. Bodies are strong and growing stronger. Hearts are full of good cheer and easy laughter. The future is filled with promise and possibilities. There are few of the worries that seem to come with adult responsibilities. All of us who have children know that when children come along, your happiness is very much tied up with theirs. It's been said that a parent is only as happy as his saddest child. So... Enjoy your days, he says, before those worries come. In verse 9, he says to the young, Rejoice, but rejoice responsibly. Do what you want to do, follow your heart's desire, but remember God is going to judge you for whatever you do. Now, this isn't a threat, it's simply a reminder. Although Solomon is doing this search under the sun, he's not an atheist. He's not an agnostic. He does does believe in God, and God comes up a number of times through the book. It's just that he seems somehow to have lost contact. But he recognizes that God is there. He says to young people, go enjoy yourselves, do it responsibly. In chapter 12, verse one, he gives the first soundest piece of advice that, that he really gives throughout the whole book. He says, so remember your creator while you're still young. In effect, he's saying, give him your best years and not just the dregs of a, left, of a leftover life. Give him the best years. Now, I don't know whether you remember, I talked about a proverb last week, not a biblical proverb, but just a proverb that's so, so wise as much of the proverbs are, and it says, as the twig is bent, so the tree grows. As the sapling, the young plant is bent, so the tree grows. And I made the point, and I reiterate this morning, the choices that you are making as a young person are determining your future. Perhaps even your eternal destiny. Statistically, we know that most people come to Christ as young people. The Barna Group in the United States have done studies and they've suggested that 43% Forty-three percent of people who come to Christ do so before the age of 13. That goes up to 64 percent by the age of 18. Other surveys have indicated that as many as as much as 83 percent of people who become Christians do so between the years of 4 and 14. Missiologists call this the 4-14 window. If you don't come to Christ by the time you're 19, they say the chances of it actually happening are about 6%. So people who think they can put off making spiritual decisions until their older years very rarely do. The reality is by that time, the twig, the sapling, is well and truly bent. And another proverb that is found in the book of Ecclesiastes comes into play, because as the twig is bent, so the tree grows. As the, as the tree falls, Ecclesiastes says, so shall it lie. And that's a reference to eternal destiny. Death doesn't change anything. It simply cements the direction of your living. And Solomon is saying, and the direction of your living so often is determined in the early years of your life. Charles Bridges once said, many have remembered too late, but none too early. Solomon is saying, listen, old age comes quickly. If you imagine your life is a 24-hour period, and you imagine that you have, on average, 72 years to live, then this morning, if you're 18 years of age, then you're at 6 a.m. in the morning of your life. If you're 27 years of age, it's 9 a.m., 36 years of age is midday, so I'm sorry if you're 37, you're on the downward run. I've been reading Solomon too long. No, it's Prozac. 45 years and it's 3 p.m. If you're 60, it's 8. That's sobering and I'm feeling a little tired. (laughs) Solomon in this passage uses the word, think about this, before several times before old age is upon you, think about these things. Solomon is incredibly honest in the way that he writes Ecclesiastes. It is very depressing, but it's very, very honest. And he talks about old age honestly. And he says, you know what? They're dark, clouded, rainy days. In verse three through five of chapter 12, in the most poetic way, he describes old age. He talks about an elderly person And he likens them to a crumbling dwelling. And he says, the keepers of the house tremble. That's the head. The strong men bow themselves. That's the legs starting to give way. The grinders cease because they are few. What's he talking about? Teeth. The windows are darkened. He's talking about your eyes. The doors are shut. The ears grow deaf. You wake with the birds. Sleeplessness becomes a problem. The daughters of music are brought low. The vocal cords fail. He says we're afraid of heights and we're concerned about security, about going out into the road. He said the almond tree flourishes. That means if you've got hair, if you've got any hair, it goes gray. And then he says, and desire fails. That includes but isn't limited to sexual desire. This is, this is sad. <laughs> True and sad. Actually, it reminds me of an incredibly funny story. I, ho- I hope you won't be offended by this story. It was told to me by a Welshman who shall remain unnamed. <laughs> what? It's a story about an old man and his equally old wife. The old man was feeling a little frisky one day and he suggested to his equally old wife that they should go upstairs and have a little cuddle. She responded, You'd better choose one or the other. We don't have enough energy for both. <laughs> and then the worst picture of all, and I just read this and just about burst into tears it says, The grasshopper drags itself along. Slow. It's like <laughs> Gives a whole new meaning to hop over and get the tomato sauce, would you? You know, it's like this thing is wounded, it's old, it's broken, and it's incredibly sad. Very picturesque, very true, very depressing. And he doesn't even stop there. I'm feeling low enough as it is right now. Verse six, he gives two very graphic pictures of death. He says, it's like a golden bowl that breaks free from its silver cord and breaks on the ground. And it's like a pitcher at a well that breaks and it means that water can no longer be accessed from the well. And in verse seven, he, return, he, he, he finishes it all up by saying, and we return to the ground from whence we've come. Dust to dust ashes to ashes. and verse 8, he winds it all up as he started it. It's all vanity. It's vanity of vanities. It's vapor. It's pointless. It's futile. Postmodern man, Western 21st century man has come to the same conclusion that Solomon has in so many ways. As Solomon said, we're no different from the beasts. 21st century man says, we're, we're just a little higher on the totem, totem pole than the beasts, but we, but, we, but we are beasts. And it's all pointless. When we die, we go into the ground. You ask most people out there what they think of when they die. Oh, when you die, you die. Nothing, nothing after that. This is artistically and dramatically illustrated and expressed by a man called Samuel Beckett in a play that he entitled *Breath*. Which, which premiered in 1969 in New York. The play lasts on a short night, 25 seconds. On a long night, it goes out to 35 seconds. So if you're looking for a real a short theatre experience, go and see Breath. Maximum 35 seconds. The curtain lifts, and there is a pile of rubbish on the stage, scattered about indiscriminately, illumined by a single light. The light dims, brightens, dims, and goes out completely. There's no plot. There's no actors. There is an accompanying soundtrack. When the curtain opens, there's a cry, a human cry at birth. Then there's an inhaled breath, an exhaled breath, and another cry, and the curtain comes down. That's the play. Beckett's interpretation of life. It's it's the book of Ecclesiastes. It's pointless. It's empty. there's, There's no meaning at all. We don't know why we're at sea. No one can know why they're at sea. Solomon has taken us on this incredibly depressing journey. He said, work is vanity. Wisdom is vanity. Pleasure is vanity. Power is vanity. Wealth is vanity. And then there's the ultimate vanity, death. And this is life without God. This is life under the sun. Solomon has explored all of the options. He had the resources to do the things that most of us just think about. And he's gone down the roads that some people are dabbling on. And he comes back and says, believe me, there is nothing there. We can't know why we're at sea. We just are. Enjoy what you can while you can. Derek Kidner in his commentary on um, Ecclesiastes says, nothing in Solomon's search has led us home. And yet that's not where the book finishes. Vanity doesn't have the last say in this book or in the Bible or, I would say, in life, if we can live with an above-the-sun perspective. Verses 9 through 13, which finish the book, form an epilogue, and it goes like this. Beside being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails, firmly fixed, and are collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making of many books there's no end, and of much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, the majority of commentators that I've in, uh, interacted with have said that this final portion is, is not actually Solomon talking, but is an addition by an unnamed editor. Solomon finished as he started. He starts off by saying all is vanity. He finishes by saying vanity of vanities. That's a, that's a, a linguistic sort of technique called an in inclusio. You start as you finish. You finish by repeating what you started. So it finishes so easily at verse eight. The rest is then added by this, as I say, unnamed editor. It isn't Solomon talking here. Now, there are a number of reasons why commentators say this. I won't go into all of them. Simply notice that the, the dialogue changes from the first person, that is Solomon talking, to the third person, where someone other than Solomon is now talking about Solomon. And the unnamed editor comments on what Solomon has written. And he said, he's written with logical clarity. The logic of what he has put down is hard to refute. He set things in order. He has written with literary artistry. He's written words of delight. And he's written with intellectual integrity. He's written words of truth. Herman Melville, who was the author of Moby Dick, once commented that Ecclesiastes was the truest of all of the books. So this editor says Solomon has written clearly, stylishly, truthfully. Then then the editor adds something. There's there's a, a warning. In verse 12, in the message translation, it says, My son, of anything beyond these, beware of the making of books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness to the flesh. Now, I know that that verse is the favorite verse in the Bible of most students, but that's not why it was written. Okay, that's actually not what he's saying. I think that that passage is a warning. And he's saying, listen, be careful that your questing doesn't become an end in and of itself. Don't quest for questing's sake. have Have you ever noticed that some people use searching as an excuse for not settling on any conclusion at all? I've noticed that. When Pilate asked Jesus, what is truth, he neither waited for an answer nor did he want one. It was just a question to throw the spotlight off him. And I think the logic of the quester can easily become, if I don't settle on an answer, then I can keep living as I wish to and not have to change or commit. And questing can become a technique of avoidance. And I think the editor is saying be careful that that doesn't happen to you. I think one of the books that I've recommended over the years to to many of you is C.S. Lewis's little book, The Great Divorce. And in this book, Lewis tells the story of a man, you have to understand the story, It's it's a really Uh, It's a wonderful story about heaven and hell, and and, uh, all, all kinds of nuances in there about those places, but in the story, Lewis talks about a man who's from a suburb of hell, and who has spent all of his life seeking for truth, or so he says. One day, this man wanders very close to the border of heaven, where by a gracious invitation of God, he's invited to enter. But the Spirit warns him and says, I can promise no scope for your talents, only forgiveness for your perversion of them. There will be here no atmosphere of inquiry, inquiry, for I will bring you to a land not of questions but of answers, and you shall see the face of God. Now this man is quite unwilling to give up his quest. He wants to study some more before he accepts anybody else's conclusions. And he says, we must all interpret those beautiful words in our own way. For me, there's no such thing as a final answer. The free wind of inquiry must continue to blow through the mind, must it not? God's Spirit responds, once you were a child and once you knew what inquiry was for, There was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and you were glad when you found them. Become that child again. The man refuses and remembers that he has an appointment and he hurries off to a discussion group in hell. This is about questing for answers, not simply questing as a way of avoiding the answers. What is truth? And Pilate turns away. Neither wanting an answer nor expecting one. Paul spoke about such people when he said, They're ever learning, but they're never coming to the truth. And this verse is warning against that possibility. Now, the editor adds the final conclusion. He gives us our sailing orders. Solomon had looked for them and couldn't find them. He'd searched under the sun and had come up with nothing, starting and finishing with its vanity. This unnamed editor says, let me tell you what Solomon didn't. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Now, if you look at most of your translations, you'll see it it says, fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Actually, the word duty is not in the original. If you've got an old King James Bible, you'll notice that it's in italics, which means it's been supplied by the translators because they thought it gave more meaning. I think that is fine as it stands. Fearing God and obeying God isn't just our duty, it's the essence of who we are called to be. It's our sailing orders, and our wholeness is wrapped up in finding that truth out. All of Solomon's searching is for wholeness. He's looking for what will complete him, what will make him whole. In the end, the editor says, fear God, keep his commandments. Without those things, you can never be whole. Psalm 111 verse 10 starts off and it says, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and all who practice it have a good understanding. To fear God is to take him seriously, to acknowledge him as our highest good, our summum bonum. It's to revere him, to honor him, to worship him, it's to center our lives on him and to learn to live with an above the sun perspective in all of the dimensions of our lives. This man says, that's the whole of life. That's your wholeness. You will never find wholeness in the search for wealth, for status, for educational um, Status. It's, it's not putting down education. It's not putting down wealth. But it's saying when you try and use those things to find meaning for your life, you will never be whole. They're not designed to make you whole. And yet, even here, there are people who have Christianized their search down those pathways, hoping that that next degree, that next promotion, that next $10,000, that next sexual contact, uh, uh, conquest, what, perhaps that relationship with that attractive person will give me the meaning for my life. And this is, a, this is a lesson in saying, no, no, it won't. It will all be vanity to you until you come to this place where you center your life on God and you live with an above the sun perspective. There's your wholeness. God may add those other things to you, but if he doesn't, you'll be none the poorer. Verse 14, he finishes, and he says, for judgment is sure. What a way to end. The message of Ecclesiastes, with its under-the-sun perspective, is that nothing matters. It's all pointless. It's all fruitless. It doesn't matter. This divinely inspired editor says, no, it's not that nothing matters, but rather that everything matters. Every word, Jesus said, including idle ones, matter. A cup of cold water given in the name of the Lord matters. Every lustful look, Jesus said, matters. Every compassionate tear matters. Your work matters. Your relationship matters. It matters. It's not pointless. And when you live with an above-the-sun perspective, it puts all of those things in focus, and friends, they matter. Everything matters and has eternal ramifications. There is a fixed day in the eternal purposes of God when he will judge the world, and it all matters. And this man is saying, live as though it matters, because friends, it does So we come to the end of Ecclesiastes and we've most of us run out of Prozac as well. It's, it has such a modern day ring to it. While everything is different, nothing has changed and everything has changed but actually nothing is different. When a people and a culture determined to live as ours has done without reference to God in an under the sun perspective, then they simply repeat the experiments of Solomon, and they end up in the same place that Solomon describes. And as you look around our culture, there is so much of our culture reflected back to us through the pages of Ecclesiastes. His warning is, don't live as I have lived. It's fallen on deaf ears in the midst of our culture. We've stumbled down the same pathways he warned us of, only to reproduce exactly the same results. And I wonder, I was thinking about it, and, and the words of Pete Seeger's song, Where Have All the Flowers Gone, kind of came back to me. You, many of you will remember it where it goes in the chorus. When will we ever learn? When will we ever learn? Our culture has not learned, and we have simply reproduced Solomon's conclusions. Somebody wrote to me in the midst of this series, um, actually they were listening from the to the podcast from overseas and they wrote me and said, Don, how could it possibly be that Solomon, a man who had encountered God in quite remarkable ways, you remember the dream where God comes to him and says, you have pleased me, ask what you will. And and he amazingly asks for wisdom. And they said, how could, how could it possibly be Solomon that has written this? I mean, this is so dark, this is so depressing could this possibly be the same person? And I wrote back and said, yeah, I think it could. We, Those of you who know the story of Solomon know that he, he did have 700 wives, 300 concubines, and the scripture then goes on to say that the strange wives, not, not that they were weird strange, but that they were strange in terms of covenant. They weren't, they weren't, the people of covenant—they—they were marriages that were political um, alliances, and these women came in from strange cultures with their strange gods, and it says these strange women stole his heart. And you know, I think of words that David wrote when he said, "Oh, how the mighty are fallen," and therein lies a warning to people like you and I, because. Faith today says nothing about faith in 10 years' time. This is a relationship that we walk out on a day-by-day basis, and you, like I, have friends that started the journey with you who now aren't on that journey, and who would say they should never have gone on it, and and will sometimes put you down for still being on it, and say, when will you open your eyes and see what I saw? That it's all just smoke and mirrors. This, this book is a sobering book. I've, I've kind of joked my way through it in a way just simply to kind of lighten the tone because to be truthful, when you read this unaccompanied with sort of a bit of cheer that you can muster up, this is a dark, depressing book written by a man who once knew God and who now has walked away. And I don't find anything sadder in life than people who have known the truth and then turned their backs on it. This is where they end up, facing death with absolutely no hope. The tree having bent in a certain way now falls and it stays where it lies. Uh, Those are sobering, sobering thoughts. Just as well we're going into Advent next week, eh? Just as well. You wouldn't believe the budget we've spent on Prozac uh, over the last few weeks trying to help people through this study. But we're now done. And uh, please take the warnings. Please take the truths of of the scripture. And um, let's be people who walk with God in an above the sun perspective, fearing God, obeying his commandments, and seeing the wholeness of God worked out in the midst of it. And part of what we do to see that happen is worship. So let's stand, shall we, and worship with the team. for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.